Last week we had a call story from John and today a call story from Matthew. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and sickness among the people. The word of the Lord. Rolf Jacobson was in high school when he had to have both his legs amputated to save his life from cancer. Today, Rolf is a professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary, but back then, He was just a scared high school kid. He said he never feared dying, but he did fear what would become of his living. Would he be able to take care of himself? Would he be able to make a living? Could he get married? Could he have kids? In the midst of all that fear, Psalm 27 became the very center of his life and center of his faith. A year ago, Rolf was at his favorite Mexican restaurant with his wife and kids when their waiter came to the table. This guy was huge, like football player huge. And he had a prominent tattoo on his arm that they saw as he reached down to give them their menus. The tattoo read Psalm 27, 1. Just that. Psalm 27, 1. Rolf said, what's up with that? And all the waiter said was, really bad childhood. Here is this healthy, strong guy. He has nothing to fear from all appearances. And yet, just like Rolf Jacobson, he clung to the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I believe that one verse, Psalm 27, 1, is an essential foundation for every one of our lives of faith. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? A recent book, Who's Bigger?, where historical figures really rank, seeks to identify the biggest names in the history of the world. Good news, Jesus wins. He was ranked first, followed immediately by Napoleon, Muhammad, Shakespeare, and Lincoln. That's the top five. Protestant reformer Martin Luther was number 17, one spot above Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. Elvis was 69th, notched right between Socrates and William the Conqueror. I have no idea. 
Queen Elizabeth I, Queen Victoria, Joan of Arc are the only three women on that top ten list, and non-whites are conspicuously absent, throwing even more doubt on dubious lists like this. Magazines know, though, and so do uh, books, that if you make anything on your cover top seven, top ten, more people buy them. We're suckers for lists like this. The thing is, we know from Scripture that, when, that Jesus ignored every single hint of status when he began his ministry in Galilee by calling people to bring God's hope and life to the world by fishing for people. C.S. Lewis once said, there's really no such thing as an ordinary person. Each person you sit to on the bus, Lewis wrote, is capable of extraordinary horrors and extraordinary heroism. By what qualifications does Jesus call those he calls into God's work? Legendary preacher Fred Craddock tells of returning to his childhood church in Tennessee. It was a small church in a small town where nothing ever changed. As he walked into the sanctuary where he hadn't been for years and years, he noted that they had new stained glass windows in the sanctuary. At the bottom of each window was the name of the donor for that window. Looking closely, he was puzzled and said to someone nearby, you must have had a lot of new folks here since I was a boy. I don't recognize any of these names. Oh, they aren't members here, somebody said. These windows were made for a church in St. Louis, but they didn't fit right, so we got them at a discount. <laughs> But don't you want to remove the names, Fred asked? Well, we thought about that. But there aren't many of us here, and there's never any new people. We kind of like sitting here on Sunday mornings surrounded by names of Christian people we've never met. Our friend Cindy Rigby, who taught in the third well class uh, this morning, was asked by the Dallas Morning News a few years ago about the search for, the, for meaning in life. I used to look for meaning in extraordinary things, Cindy said, in overcoming obstacles and odds, in crucifixion and resurrection. But I'm learning that meaning is found more in ordinary things. In the 10-minute conversation I have with my husband over coffee about something that, we, that troubled both of us the night before, or the conversation I have with a quiet student right after class when something has finally clicked in her and she's putting things together. A sacrament is an ordinary thing made extraordinary. It's a friend of mine who abruptly stops mid-sentence to make his still-in-bed teenage daughter perfect cinnamon sugar toast. Poet Brian Andreas wrote, Anyone can slay a dragon, said the knight, but try waking up every morning and loving the world all over again. That's what a real hero a real hero is one who never gives up making meaning, even in the face of ugliness and ambiguity. She wakes up, she loves, she makes toast, and she defends her friends. She's open to being overtaken by the beauty of ordinary things. It surrounds us, it unfolds us, it claims us. Our goal is to perceive it, not to find it. So the question that currently frames my search for meaning is, how might I live more perceptively? And the best answer I have so far is to love this world more. 
I think being asked to go fish for people is being called to love the world more. And there are all sorts of examples of loving the world more. They're all around us. We don't need to go looking for the extraordinary person or the A-list Christians or the super saints. Patricia Zarate heard God's call and it turned her modest, cautious life upside down. A few years ago, she ran a tiny struggling cafe in one of the roughest neighborhoods of Los Angeles. Through her church, she met Father Greg Boyle, who we've talked about before here, founder of Homeboy Industries, started in the 80s with a single bakery that employed at-risk youth and gang members that now includes tattoo removal, GED classes, counselors of former gang members, and a host of other things. Within a few months, Zarate agreed to hire and train women at risk of being pulled back into gangs. The result was Homegirl Cafe, where everyone from the cooks to the wait staff are all former gang members. A while ago, the actress Diane Keaton came into Homegirl Cafe for lunch. The woman taking her order said, don't I know you? And, you know, Keaton was all self-effacing, oh, I don't know, like, you know, don't make a fuss over me just because I'm a star. But the waitress persisted. She goes, no, no, I'm sure I've seen you. Wait a minute, we were locked up in Chino together, weren't we? <laughs> if you go into Homegirl Cafe today, Zarate might introduce you to Adela Juarez, a hostess, who's having her tattoos, marking her former gang life, laser removed, and hopes to attend college to become a drug counselor. My kids are so proud, she says. Every day when I get home, they ask me, was there any drama? How much money and tips did you get? This is such an amazing second chance. I can't believe it. And that all began with a call to an unlikely, ordinary, struggling cafe owner. In 1939, Paul Gruninger was a middle-level police official in a picturesque Swiss town right on the Austrian border. At 47, Gruninger lived a life of quiet conventionality. His job at the police department mostly involved filling out forms, or so it seemed. In truth, Gruninger had undertaken the risky work of fishing for people. In April 1939, Gruninger found his way to work blocked by soldiers in his path who said, sir, you no longer have access to this building. It had been discovered that for months and months, Gruninger had secretly altered documents of Jews fleeing Austria for Switzerland. Non-Aryan refugees, the law of the land said at that time, were not allowed to cross the border into Switzerland. But all it took was a few strokes of Gruninger's pen, you know, backdating a passport or changing this or that to perhaps save a life. Gruninger was fired, ordered to turn in his uniform, subjected to criminal charges. The authorities spread false rumors that he'd taken bribes to do this. Disgraced as a lawbreaker, shunned by his neighbors, Gruninger peddled raincoats and animal feed until he died in poverty in 1972. What possesses seemingly ordinary people to exhibit extraordinary and risky courage on behalf of others. It is curious, mused Mark Twain one time, that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage 
so rare. Whether they could fully grasp it that day by the Sea of Galilee, Peter and Andrew and James and John would never be the same after Jesus came by and said, follow me. Truly, from that day on, the arc of their life consisted of losing their life so that they might save it. As they followed Jesus in the small, regular ways of daily life, seeking to love the world more. Theologian Arthur McGill said it's of little use to urge people to be brave or selfless. Whether people serve themselves or serve others, he said, is not in their power to choose. This is decided wholly in terms of the world in which they think they live. In New Testament terms, they live or die according to the king that holds them and the kingdom of which they are the citizens. Stacy, on this day of installation, your ministry does not change. Uh, your important role and work among us will not change. Your abundant gifts for ministry are well established and don't even get polished by this wonderful service. But perhaps by the vows you affirm in a moment, perhaps you and all of us can be reminded anew about the kingdom to which we truly belong and that we will feel that we are sent afresh to go fish for people in God's name. Maybe we can be reminded where and how God is shaping and reshaping us as the body of Christ today. At the end of a long, contentious church meeting that involved several congregations, finally, the oldest person in the room was asked to close in prayer, mostly to put everyone out of their misery. As everyone stood to pray, the designated prayer paused a long time before finally uttering this prayer. Lord, we are forever asking you for so many things when what you are forever giving us instead is the gift of one another. Amen. What I know for sure is that there are gifts in every pew in this church, every single pew, every single space. You inhabit gifts given to you abundantly by God to be used for your good, our good, and the good of the world. What I know is that every pew in every church has this abundance of gifts. We are together the called, the reluctant, the courageous, who live by Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I fear? Not just ministers get called and installed. That is a call and an installation for every single one of us every day, in every church, in every pew. Here are those who are the modest, ordinary people who greet each day seeking to love the world more. And as I look out on all of you, I see you and your gifts, but I also see ghosts of those who have sat in your pew in your location in all the churches I have served. In the first pew, and don't you dare sit there, 
are Sam and June. They were charter members but never held on to that status for anyone. They could be a bit gruff. Seriously, do not sit in their pews. Not even on Easter. It will not be good. But every time I looked, they were taking someone to the doctor or bringing a meal. And as they aged and the congregation had new people, mostly they were doing it for people they'd never met before. They just heard that there was a need. Don and Nadine usually sat back in this area, quiet retirees who took two hours out of every morning, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, to make the rounds of grocery stores to get secondhand bread and other things grocery stores were giving away to make sure our homeless shelter pantry was well stocked. Usually somewhere over there were Joel and Barbara who lived the horror of having their teenage son die in a car accident. Every Sunday, though, there they were in their pew, praying, praising, sharing, serving, often with, I know, with pain too deep for words. But they faithfully lived every day as a day the Lord had made. Always sitting right in the middle of things was Bob, who died too soon in his 40s, leaving two teenage children, but also living, leaving about a dozen Habitat for Humanity houses that he spurred everyone to build. After he died, whenever there was a lagging of zeal or energy or focus about building another house, all anybody had to do is mention Bob's name and everyone rose up to volunteer. Sherlyn never sat in the same place twice. She endured more racial hatred than I can begin to imagine. And she kept loving and living and serving and leading. And she kept moving around, always, every week, to extend welcome to everyone she could, the very thing that had been denied her most of her life, inside of church and out. In the very back row, there was somebody I only knew as purple-haired bartender. I never really knew her name. What I remember is in that downtown church, she would get off work early in the morning and come to church and meet her boyfriend, and they would make out in the back row until the service started. I would love to produce the minutes of that session meeting where that got discussed. What I also remember is that one December, she just came up to me and introduced herself and said, look, if anyone's alone on Christmas, uh, we're opening the bar to friends. I tell them we'd love to have them. I mean, it's not going to be a lot, but no one should be alone. We are all called. We're all called. Every single one of us. And called people are finally led to say, led to pray, led to trust. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then, off we go, every single one of us, to love the world 